Hey, you're listening to Clumsy Theosis, a Catholic podcast that explores topics within the Catholic faith to help us deepen our spiritual lives, own our relationship with the Lord, and strengthen His church. Hey, what's up? My name is Rochelle Lucero. Welcome to the Clumsy Theosis podcast. I'm the host of this show. I'm really glad that you have tuned in today because we are getting towards the tail end of a series that we've been doing the past number of weeks on salvation history, which is also known as covenant history. And if you are not familiar with that. I mean, it is exactly what it sounds like. It's the history about salvation or the history of the covenants that God has made with and through six important figures in the scriptures, starting with Adam and ending with Jesus. And the thing about salvation history that I think is important to remind people of is that these covenants show how God has always been actively present throughout the history of humanity, right? God is not distant. He is an active and present father, and he always has been. And the purpose of all of this is for our salvation, which means basically returning humanity to their originally intended state, which is to be free from sin and primarily to be children of God, right? Which that then brings us into the family of God, and it draws us into his inner life, which is what he's always been trying to do from the beginning because he wants us to be part of that love, that inner love, that inner life that is the Trinity itself. And I don't know about you, but to me, that kind of sounds a little bit like theosis, right? Well, exactly. That is precisely what it sounds like because that's precisely what it is. Now, in our last episode, we talked about Jesus, who is the final covenant. And we looked at the prophets and we saw how God was getting the Israelites ready for this final covenant that was going to be coming, and he was doing this by sending them messages via the prophets of the Old Testament. And we explored why three prophets in particular described this final covenant as a new everlasting covenant of peace. But one of the more important takeaways from last week's episode was that the prophets were speaking not only about Jesus, the God-man, but also the Eucharist, his body, blood, soul, and divinity. Now, after all of that, you would think we were done with this series, right? At the end of last week's episode, we had covered Adam and all the way through the foretelling of Jesus and the Eucharist. But again, that is just the Old Testament. We have two more episodes to go in this series, and that includes today's episode. Speaking of today's episode, today we're going to go and we're going to look at all of the covenants in the Old Testament that we've already covered, so you are familiar with them now. We're going to look at them all and we're going to see how God the Father expanded his family with every covenant that he made, how he made salvation open and available to more and more of his people, of his children, with every single covenant. And then after we do that, we'll talk about how Jesus fulfilled every single one of those covenants in the Old Testament, the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants, how Jesus was either the fulfillment of that covenant or the perfecter of that covenant. And you'll see why the distinction is made between fulfillment and uh, perfecter as we go through them. And I think you're going to like it. Our patrons, who are the folks who donate to Clumsy Theosis monthly, specifically those on the intentional disciple level, Those patrons received an illustrated infographic about this information we're about to cover with regard to God expanding his family with every covenant. 
So to all of my intentional disciples out there, I sent this to you in February because I was preparing you for this episode. So now all of that information is going to make a lot more sense to you. Okay, now with every single covenant, you are always going to find three things. The first is a mediator, who is the biblical figure who God worked with in order to create each of these covenants. The second thing that you will find in every covenant is a sign, the sign of the covenant. This is going to be the covenant-making act. Think of this as like a cosmic handshake between God and man. You know, between two people, when you make a deal, you shake hands on it, right? When you shake on it, the deal is struck and it's sealed, okay? Now, in this case, either God or the covenant mediator himself has to do a thing or participate in an act or an event. And when they do that, then the covenant is considered sealed. It's official. Now, the third thing in every covenant is form, the form that that covenant has taken. Now, for us, we really want to focus on this today because the form of every covenant is going to show us how God has grown his family every time he made one of these covenants. And I think it's really cool when you have it explained to you or you can like visualize how it's grown through all of these different forms because before it was explained to me, I did not see it on my own. Maybe you have. And if that's you, teach me your ways. All right, so let's talk about all of these three things in all of these six covenants. All right, so Adam is our first mediator, and the sign of the covenant that God made with him is the Sabbath, which really was a posh gig. You know, remember the Sabbath rest was just Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God, you know, husband and wife having a nice stroll and a chat with God, their creator. I mean, that right there is like a cushy that, that's a cushy sign for a covenant. The form that this covenant took was one of marriage. You got it. God began his human family with the marriage between Adam and Eve. You know, like that children's nursery rhyme. First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. All right, well, those babies in the baby carriage are going to come a little bit later, but it all starts with love and marriage. And that's how God started his family with humanity, with their marriage. The next covenant was with Noah, and it's pretty universally understood that the sign of that covenant is the rainbow, because after God promised to never destroy the earth again with a flood, remember he put a rainbow in the sky as a reminder to everyone of his covenantal promise. The form that this covenant took was one of a household, right? Because who was on the ark with Noah? You have his wife, his sons, and their spouses. This is his family. This is his household. So we've seen that God has grown his family from a marriage all the way now to a household. So let's see what he's going to do next. In the covenant that God made with Abraham, the sign is circumcision. Now, this has to do with Abraham taking Hagar into his bed and producing the illegitimate child Ishmael. You know, it really comes down to Abraham not trusting God's plan for his life. And in order for them to have a trusting covenant, both parties, God and Abraham, needed to trust each other. And Abraham then had to go forward with circumcision. The form that this covenant ends up taking is that of a tribe. Abraham's household just exploded and expanded into a tribe of many households, and they thrived in the wilderness. They, we can read in scripture that they were very wealthy with regard to livestock and gold and silver. So 
now we have a tribe. God has expanded his salvation to this tribe of people. Then we get to Moses, and the sign of the covenant that God makes with him is the Passover. So you remember back to when they were slaves in Egypt and they had the plagues. During that 10th plague, the angel of death was sent out, but he was supposed to pass over all of the homes who killed an unblemished lamb, and they put the blood of that lamb over their door, and they ate that lamb's flesh. All right, here's an interesting fact that's not related to exactly what we're doing, but... Yeah, it's time to geek out for just a second. All right, not all of those Hebrew slaves followed that ritual of the Passover completely. And the reason that we know this is because there was a census that was taken down in the book of Numbers, and it shows a 25 to 1 ratio of males who were over 20 to those who were considered firstborns. So there were supposed to be a lot more firstborns. And if there were, just imagine how much larger God's human family would have been at that point because the form that this covenant took is one of nationhood, right? So those 12 tribes of Israel, they become the nation state of God's chosen people. And if those families back in Egypt would have followed all the steps of the Passover ritual, there would have been so many more firstborns who would have had their own offspring, and this nation would have been even larger than it was And we know that it was pretty darn big anyways. Our next covenant is with David. And the sign of this covenant is pretty self-explanatory. It's the temple as well as the throne um, over all of Jerusalem and the Israelites. Because this was part of the covenant that God made with David, you know. The son of David was supposed to build a temple for God to dwell in. And the son of David was also supposed to rule as king forever. And the form of this covenant is one of a kingdom, right? Because that only makes sense. Kings rule over kingdoms. So we have a nation state with Moses. Now we have a kingdom with David, right? So we've expanded and to a, you know, a larger territory. Now this kingdom is and always will be the kingdom of a son of God because David himself is a son of God and his heir will also be a son of God. And when he is ruling this kingdom, this heir of David, he's going to bless his kingdom because that's what sons of God do. They give out blessing, but not only to the people in his kingdom, but also to those in other nations. So basically, this is an international kingdom. So we went from a nation state to an international kingdom. And the final covenant is with Jesus. And the sign of the covenant made with and through and by Jesus is the Eucharist. And listen to this for a second. We know that Jesus is God, right? So the presence of God dwells in God's body because, you know, hello. And the Eucharist, we know, is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, who is God, right? So when we eat of the Eucharist, we become dwelling places for God as well. So I ask you, what is the form of this final covenant? I'll give you three guesses. All right. And I hope one of those guesses is the church. And that's because the Eucharistic covenant finds its home in the church because of the divine liturgy or the holy mass and the apostolic priesthood. You need those things in order to consecrate the bread and the wine into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. But remember that the church is more than just your local parish. 
The church herself is universal, as is the Eucharist. So you see, God has expanded his family from a marriage to a household, to a tribe, to a nation, to an international kingdom, and now to a universal church. I mean, I think that is so beautiful, so amazing, and it makes so much sense. When you think about God and the nature of God and how he is love itself and how his desire has always been to bring his children to himself, to draw us up into his divine life, this makes so much sense that he was just, you know, working with us in our limitations and bringing us back to him. And now he is available to anyone and everyone. With Jesus and the Eucharist, we now have a new covenant as we established or as we saw the prophets foretell in our last episode. But that doesn't mean out with the old and in with the new. Because Jesus embodied all of those old covenants as well as his own new covenant. And then you need to remember that some of those old covenants are not yet completed. So you can't throw them out, you know, like the one with Abraham or the covenant with David. Because in those covenants, God made some pretty long-term promises to them that have not yet been fulfilled until Jesus, right? Because Jesus, he's now on the scene and he's going to fulfill those covenants and he's going to perfect or he's going to heal the rest of the covenants. And so let's take a look at how he does that. And this is going to be the second part of the show. The second thing on our agenda, right, is to see how Jesus fulfills all of the covenants that came before him. But first, this is the part of the show where we take a minute and thank our donors because Clumsy Theosis, remember, is what? 100% listener supported. But unfortunately, this month, we or this month, this episode, we do not have any new monthly supporters to thank. We do have some uh, one-time donors, and I do tip my hat to you. You know who you are. But if you are listening and you like the show, you feel like it's benefited you, and you would like to help me get this show out to other people in the world who need it, I greatly encourage you to pray about donating. And if you feel like you're supposed to, head over to clumsytheosis.net and click the word donate in the menu. If you can only give a one-time donation, that is totally understandable. I am so grateful. I thank you in advance. But if you're able to commit to monthly donations by becoming a patron, that is so awesome. I cannot tell you how stoked that would make me. And um, when you do that, you also get access to resources every week and you get merchandise as well as just being part of a community of people who want to grow in holiness together and to become who God created them to be. So head over to clumsytheosis.net and then click the word donate in the menu and at least check it out. See if it's for you or not. Let's get the rundown for how Jesus fulfilled every covenant that came before him. All right. So with Adam, we know Adam was a son of God right? We've gone over this, I don't know how many times now, which made him a priest, prophet, king, and bridegroom. Jesus is the true son of God, hence the emphasis of the virgin birth. You know, we're emphasizing that the Holy Spirit fathered Jesus, right? He is the true son of God, and this was confirmed at his baptism. And also in scripture, Jesus frequently talks about God as father or Abba, which is the equivalent of saying daddy. Was Jesus a prophet? 
Well, he said he was, so I'm going to believe him. Remember when he was talking about how a prophet is unappreciated in his own town? He was referring to himself, so he's calling himself a prophet. His disciples also called him a prophet when, you know, Jesus asked him, who are the people saying that I am? And the apostles responded by listing off a whole bunch of prophets, basically saying, yeah, you're one of these guys. You're in this realm. You are a prophet. And then on Palm Sunday, when he enters into Jerusalem, the crowd announces that he is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Was Jesus a priest? Well, we call him a high priest, but why do we do that? Is that part of scripture? Well, of course it is. Now, when the Pharisees try to bust Jesus for working on the Sabbath, do you remember that? Jesus reminds them that even priests work in the temple on the Sabbath, and they're supposed to work in the temple on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus isn't just being cheeky here. Well, maybe he's kind of being a little bit cheeky, but he's basically saying, yeah, I'm a priest and I'm allowed to work on the Sabbath. And then at his crucifixion, John makes it a point to record what kind of seems like an unnecessary detail um, during the crucifixion when he's talking about Jesus's clothing, specifically his tunic. And he says that Jesus's tunic didn't have a seam. It was solid from head to foot or from neck to foot. And it, it seems like it's unnecessary, but no, John did this on purpose because the high priest in the temple was the only one who ever had a tunic that was like that. Um, it was probably very costly. It was definitely rare, and it was definitely setting the high priest apart. And Jesus had a tunic just like the high priest. Jesus is the high priest. All right, next is him being a king. And in order to prove that Jesus is king, you need to connect him to David, right? Because David and his descendants are the ones who are supposed to rule Israel forever, according to the Davidic kingdom. So Matthew does just that in his genealogy at the beginning of his gospel. He traces Jesus back to David through Mary. Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, when he's talking to Mary, he tells her that God will give um, her son, Jesus, God will give him the throne of his father, David. And that's, I think, in Luke's gospel. Also, in Jesus's lifetime, he performs exorcisms and miracles, which these were things that David did. Remember that? And people noticed that he was doing them. They noticed the similarity between this action and how it was only something that David could do because he had, you know, the special charism because he was the son of God. And when people noticed this, they called him as such. They called Jesus the son of David. Jesus also rode into Jerusalem, remember, on a donkey, which was obviously imitating Solomon, who was a Solomon was obviously a son of David. And then at the time of Jesus's crucifixion, the sign that was put above his head and even the charge that was laid against him was that he was the king of the Jews. Now, was the Roman occupation mocking him? Yes. But does that make it any less true? No, because he was king and is king. And lastly, is Jesus the bridegroom? Jesus alludes to himself as being a bridegroom, especially when he's telling some parables about the kingdom of heaven. But if that's not enough for you, John the Baptist is much more direct, and I think we miss this. I know I used to always miss this. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist says this. He says, I am not the Messiah, 
I have been sent before him. And I think many people are familiar with that. Then John the Baptist goes on to say some stuff about a bridegroom, which kind of sounds a little confusing. And then he says, I must increase, but he must decrease. And many people are familiar with that as well. It's that part in between about the bridegroom that sounds confusing that in this context, like knowing what we know now, this is going to make so much more sense and it's going to kind of prove that Jesus is the bridegroom. John the Baptist says, he who has the bride is the groom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. For this reason, my joy has been fulfilled. All right, that's in John chapter 3, verse 29. And it kind of doesn't seem like it, it matches with the, the part that comes before it and the part that comes after it. But it makes so much sense now that we know that Jesus is the new Adam and Adam was the son of God who one of the features of being a son of God is to be a bridegroom. So Jesus is definitely a bridegroom as well as all of the other features of being a son of God because Jesus is a new Adam. And on to the covenant with Noah. Remember that Noah was kind of like a new Adam figure because creation had been reset in a way. So Noah is like the new Adam. And what we just did right now is we saw how Jesus himself is the new Adam. So by establishing that Jesus is the new Adam, we have also established that um, he takes over for Noah, who was in a sense a new Adam as well. So that's kind of an anticlimactic one, but true nonetheless. Moving on to the covenant with Abraham. And Jesus both perfects this covenant as well as fulfills this covenant with regard to perfecting this covenant, I know we've spoken about this a number of times throughout this series, you know, the similarities between Jesus and Isaac, Isaac being the son of Abraham, and um, Isaac's near sacrifice on Mount Moriah, as well as Jesus's crucifixion, which actually happens to be on Calvary, which is part of the Mount Moriah mountain range. But, you know, there's similarities, you know, they're both the only son of their father, they both carry wood to the top of a mountain, which is going to be the instrument of their death. And uh, they do this because of the love of their father. They, they willingly know that they're going to their death. They sacrifice themselves because of the love that they have and obedience they have for their father. So in doing that, Jesus becomes a new Isaac and perfects this covenant. But remember, this covenant isn't yet fully complete because God promised that worldwide blessing would come from him, from the seed of Abraham, which hasn't happened yet. And only Jesus has the ability to fulfill this because he is perfect God, right? And so because he is perfect God, he cannot and he will not fail at giving blessing worldwide. Then we get the covenant that God made with Moses, which is a horribly patched up covenant that's just been beat up and kicked around but somehow Jesus is able to come in and he heals this covenant and he perfects this covenant by becoming the new Moses I mean why not he's already become the new Adam and a new Isaac why not become a new Moses then we get to Moses and Jesus is somehow miraculously able to fix this badly patched up and kicked around covenant that God made with Moses and had to remake and fix and all of that. And Jesus is able to heal this covenant by becoming the new Moses. And remember that Moses was a prophet. 
and not just any prophet. Moses is actually known as the greatest prophet. And as the greatest prophet, Moses has been able to physically see God when they were up on Mount Sinai and God was carving the Ten Commandments into the tablet. But Moses was only ever able to see the back of God. He was only ever to see, able to see God's back. John tells us in his gospel that no one has ever seen God. The only son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. John's basically saying that Jesus has seen God, and not only has he seen him, he's been in his bosom, and he is able to show God to us, which is basically the same as saying Jesus is greater than the greatest prophet. Now, is this a stretch, right, like that we're making this comparison? No. And that's because John actually sets up this comparison between Jesus and Moses, because in the the verse before that, John actually says, for the law has been given through Moses, grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. So he's already setting up this comparison between Jesus and Christ and calling everyone to remember that Moses has been able to see God's back, but now Jesus is able to not only see him, but be in his bosom and show him to us. So he's greater than Moses. Moses established the first Passover, right? But Jesus instituted the Eucharist at his last Passover. And remember that the Passover ritual didn't actually hold the power to remove sins. But Jesus turned the Passover into the sacrifice of his body and blood, which has permanently cleansed us from our sin. Moses gave God's law from atop Mount Sinai in the form of the Ten Commandments, Jesus gave the new law in the form of the Beatitudes during the Sermon on the Mount. When they were wandering in the wilderness, Moses was able to provide the Hebrews with the manna, you know, which is the bread from heaven. Jesus did something very similar when he multiplied the loaves and the fishes. And the people noticed this and they commented on it and they did liken him to Moses. But more importantly, Jesus has been able to give us the Eucharist, which is the true supernatural food, supernatural, supernatural food that brings eternal life. Moses failed, remember, to bring the people into the promised land, and instead Joshua had to do it after Moses' death. Jesus brings his people into the promised land. And it's interesting here because Joshua and Jesus are actually the same name in Hebrew. But Jesus isn't just bringing his people into an earthly promised land. He's bringing them into the promised land of eternal life. So you see here, Jesus has perfected all of these things in the Mosaic Covenant as the new Moses. And now we finally get to David. And I've probably said this four times, five times in this series. Um, I got a little bit carried away, jumped the gun a little bit, and explained how Jesus has fulfilled the Davidic covenant. Um, But just to recap, remember, God promised David three things. Well, he promised David a son who would do three things. He would build a temple for God, he would be adopted as a son of God, and he would rule Israel forever. Now, Jesus, we know, is the son of God. He is not just an adopted son of God. He is the actual son of God. With regard to a temple, Jesus gives us something better than the temple of stone that Solomon built. Even though we can read how glorious it is, Jesus gives us something better. Jesus's body, in fact, is the new temple as we established in our last episode. 
And bonus, we become temples ourselves when we eat of Jesus's body and blood. And when we do that, we become dwelling places for God's presence, right? Because that's what a temple is, a dwelling place for God's presence. And lastly, the son of David was supposed to rule Israel forever, right? And Jesus has come to do just that. And he does that from the right hand of God in the everlasting kingdom. So we see that Jesus perfects the Davidic covenant, but he also fulfills it by finally ruling Israel forever. So in this series, we have looked at all of the covenants before Jesus, and today we kind of did a summation of all of the covenants before Jesus, how God expanded his family with every covenant he made and how Jesus fulfilled every covenant that was made before him. But we're not quite done with our series yet because in the last episode we did, we talked about how the prophets foretold Jesus and the Eucharist as the final covenant. But that's all we did. We looked at the prophecies. We haven't looked at how Jesus actually fulfilled these prophecies because we need to know what it's going to look like when Jesus fulfills this new everlasting covenant of peace. We also need to look at this odd thing that we kind of took at face value last week, which was whether or not a person themselves could be a covenant. So we're going to look at those two things in the final episode of this series, which will be next week, my friends, which is going to end us right before Holy Week, which is the perfect time to end the series, I think. So until next week, I hope you're enjoying yourself and you're enjoying the scriptures. Peace out. Thank you for tuning in to Clumsy Theosis. I'm so happy that you've been able to hang out. If you want to learn more about Clumsy Theosis, you are more than welcome to visit my website, clumsytheosis.net. From clumsytheosis.net, you will also be able to contact me if you're interested in booking me as a speaker or if you're just feeling generous and you'd like to make a donation. Remember that together we can transform the world by letting the Lord transform us. 